Well, good morning. Michael will be back next week, our lead pastor, and he'll be finishing up the series, doing the meta-narrative that he talked about, and he'll be finishing that for us next week. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 2. Since Tim did communion, I did have some thought about getting some guys to put some poles through this a chair and carry me around while... <laughs> but I decided that probably wouldn't be the best thing to do. So the, uh, actually I actually have a torn Achilles tendon that's healing, and uh, I, I'm around in the boot. I've graduated to a boot now instead of my uh, knee, uh, knee stroller, although I do have that in the cafe just in case I need it. And, um, but I'm still not quite ready to stand for the whole time of preaching now, so I will be doing this. One other thing is, yesterday was Sparksorama, and if you see a bunch of little kids only about this tall running around in yellow shirts, they took second place at the competition yesterday. The girls will have bows in their hair that are yellow, and the guys will have wristbands that are yellow. Just tell them congratulations. They did a really good job on that. And Awana is a ministry we have for children here from age three years old up through sixth grade on Monday nights. And uh, you can find more information at the Connect Decks, but it's really an exciting ministry for your kids. So if you have kids that age, just go ask them about if they're not participating and learn about how they can uh, learn more from the Bible, study it, and participate that way and all, okay? Now, I know John already prayed, but I like to pray too before I preach. It just sort of settles me down as well. And uh, so if you bow your heads with me as we open in prayer. Lord, how good it is for you to give us the Word of God that speaks your truth. And with your truth that it speaks to our hearts and to our minds. And each one of us comes here today from different circumstances, situations. And Lord, some people are here today and they're really distracted. Man, they're just going through things in their life that uh, overwhelms. And therefore, as they come today, Lord, all of us find ourselves being drawn to your word to hear it. But for you to speak to us. And there's some who really need your comfort. And the difficult things they're going through, they need your word and your spirit to come in and bring just real comfort to their souls and strength for the days they live in. Lord, for others they come, and it's where uh, their walk with you is doing well. But they really sort of need to hear from you that word of encouragement to press on, to continue on in what they're doing, that sense of persevering, and your spirit can do that for them. And Lord, for others, it's where they've actually wandered off the path. They, they somehow are not in sync with you, and they really need to be called back into that relationship. And therefore, your spirit needs to come along and convict them. So whatever our relationship at this time with you is, we're asking your spirit to come in and do the work that only it can do with your word, illuminating it for our minds and for our hearts that we become the men and women that you want us to be, that we're conformed to the image of your dear Son, becoming more like Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, weddings are so much fun. They're so enjoyable. They're just exciting to be at if you're a guest. Now, if you're the family, if you're the bride, you're the groom, parents are the bride, and you're doing all that planning and everything, you get that long anticipation that you get, that exciting part, which is called great stress. And it all starts with the engagement, with somehow that proposal comes about, the proposal's there, and the very first thing you start asking, oh, when's the wedding date? Oh, where's it going to be? Who's the best man? Who's the bridesmaid? What are you going to have for the... I mean, you even get down to the place that you go to the place, and they let you taste three different kinds of cake. So you know, oh, I want this one. And there's just so much that has to be done. The invitations, the list... All that goes on. 
all to bring about that sense of that wedding day. And we all really know, even though we don't say it, we put all that energy in the wedding day, but the real commitment, though, is to that marriage that's going to last more than that one day. But the wedding is signifying, identify one thing. Change takes place on that day. It's a change for everybody on that occasion. I remember my first daughter who was getting married. Uh, We had everything done. We did all the stress stuff and everything. And we're at the rehearsal. This is the Friday night rehearsal. Pastor's up in front. The bridesmaids and bridegrooms are all in place. And I'm in the back with my daughter. And I get to walk her down the aisle for the rehearsal. We come down the aisle. We get all the way up to the front. And the pastor says, who gives this woman to this man? And all of a sudden, I realized what was taking place. And tears start streaming down my cheeks. And I say, her mother and I. And then I take her arm. And I actually hand it off to her, the groom. And she's leaving me. And she's cleaving to her husband. And then they walk away from us. Up just, just three or four feet, folks. And all of a sudden I realize she's leaving and she's cleaving and everything has changed. And you wait for that moment. I now pronounce you husband and wife and it all changes. Oh, it changes for them. It changes for everybody. All of a sudden those families sitting here all of a sudden become the in-laws of the fam- couple that just got married. The relationship changes everything. Their whole life changes. Weddings and marriages all about change. And that's exactly what happens in our passage here today. It's all about change. It's a wedding that takes place. But in this wedding, there's a backstory of change to understand. The event takes place in verses 1 and 2. Here's what we read. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was was also invited and his disciples to the wedding. It says the third day. We're not sure exactly what this is referring to. Probably, it seems, most would think the chapter before. The chapter before, it goes through the next day, the next day, the next day. So this would be the third day after that. It would be the first week in the life of Christ meeting people and things, possibly. But after that third day, it says there's a wedding in Cana, and Cana is about... Oh, six, seven miles north of Nazareth. That's where Jesus lived. So Mary and Jesus live in Nazareth, and all of a sudden you're going north about six, seven miles. That's where Canaan is. And it says there's a wedding taking place. But take note of how it describes the mother of Jesus. It says that she's there, but Jesus and his disciples are invited. You get the sense that she has some responsibility for it, and Jesus and his disciples are guests at it. In fact, when you read later on, there's a situation where they run out of wine, and Mary goes and talks to the servants about it. It's as though she's got some responsibility at this wedding that's taking place. Now, you have to understand how weddings took place in those days. It's not quite what we do today. What would happen in the home was all of a sudden, the groom shows up at the bride's house, gets the bride, and he brings her all the way to his home. And that's where the ceremony would take place. But it doesn't end there. That's the beginning of a seven-day celebration. Seven days. But you've got to think about it. 
If family and friends have walked 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100, 200 miles to get there, they just don't turn around and go home the next day. Man, if they've been there to see you after walking 200 miles, they're going to hang out with the family for a little while. And it's a week-long celebration that takes place. And somehow, Mary seems responsible in some way at the wedding. Somehow, she's got some responsibility, it seems, in the reception. Somehow, she can go into the kitchen and give instructions. And we say this because just imagine you're at somebody's wedding. And all of a sudden, you decide to go into the kitchen. Once you get in the kitchen, you start telling the people in the kitchen what to do. They're not going to listen to you because you're just a guest. But they'll listen to somebody in charge. It just seems like Mary's in charge. There's something else that's interesting here. Is it describes Jesus being invited, but also with his disciples. Now, it's understand what the word disciple means. All it means is follower. It doesn't necessarily speak of their faith yet. It just says that they're followers. And we met these guys in chapter 1. We're introduced to them when all of a sudden John the Baptist goes, Behold the Lamb of God. And all of a sudden we find that John and Andrew go following and asking Jesus questions. And all he says is, Come and see. There's a curiosity on the part of the disciples. And they're there with him. And all of a sudden the wedding's going to take place. But then everything changes. First, it changes for Mary. Here's what we read, verse 3. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to do, do it. That identifies Mary's sort of responsibility. Somehow they're running out of wine. Her response is, We need to do something about it. She goes to Jesus and asks Jesus and tells him that they're out of wine. And his response to her is, Woman, what do I have to do with you? Now, as soon as we read that, we're like, whoa, this doesn't sound very respectful, does it? Calling his mom, woman. Now, it's interesting, just so you understand how this works. You get to John chapter 20, when Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's getting ready to pass away. He looks at his mom and he calls her woman. And identifies that she is now going to be watched over by the disciple John and he will care for her. It's a term of respect. It's not disrespect. I grew up in Maryland, which is more of a southern state. And I grew up on the East Coast there where you called everybody Mr. and Mrs. But you also said, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and yes, sir, and no, sir. To this day, I still do it. If I'm in a restaurant and I have a 19-year-old woman serving me, I will say to her, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. To which she says, I am no, ma'am, sir. I'll say, I know, but I was just raised calling you, ma'am. It's a term of respect, not disrespect. Now, after saying this, I want all the young people to understand here today, do not go home and call your mom woman (laughs) and say, well, Jesus did it. You will get in trouble. Ever heard of a timeout? Ever heard of, no, we won't go there. Don't go home and call your mom woman. Husbands, don't call your wife woman either. Even though it's a term of respect then, it is not a term of respect today. But Jesus shows respect for him, but she's also identifying something. Something has changed. Mary comes to Jesus talking to him like a mother to a son. 
And Jesus changes the relationship to identify he now has authority over her. What identified a relationship of a mother to a son, where she could speak to him, make requests of him as to a son, Jesus changes her relationship and says, Mother, our relationship has changed. He even identifies that his hour has not yet come. And he's saying, for Mary, this relationship she's had as a, to her son, something changes on this day. Something is different about Jesus. Somehow his ministry is changing things, and all of a sudden she needs to understand that there's somehow his authority over her now. There's a submission she has to him. There's a relationship that changes for her that didn't exist before, and what used to be has now changed for Mary. Where she used to speak just as a mother, he now has authority over her, and their relationship is changed. But something changes for Jesus, too. He has just said to her, my hour has not yet come. And she says to the servant, do whatever he asks of you. So here's what we read, verse 6. So what happens? Now, there's, now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And these, these water pots were actually carved out of stone. They weren't pottery. The, the thing about potteries, pottery absorbs. They, they can absorb the water and the dirt from purification. Uh, the idea here is they're carved out of stone. They cannot do that. So the whole idea of the purification, you wash out the pot and put new water in, it'll still be pure water. It was ceremonial. This was not for hygiene. This wasn't like they washed their hands and their feet before they had dinner. This was ceremonial that they did. And he's identifying that these pots were here. Now, they're 20 or 30 gallons each. That's 120 to 180 gallons of water that these things can hold. So you have the purification pots there. And then Jesus says this, verse 7. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. Now, to understand when he filled these up, you've all done this, is you've had a glass of water where you fill it up and you keep filling up and you finally get it to where it's to the brim. And when it gets to the brim, the water's not flat on that, water, that glass, is it? No, there's, a little, there's a little hump to it. There's a little rise to it. It's a little higher than the edge of the glass. Jesus says, fill these water pots up to the brim. And they've got this little, like almost a little hump on the top. And we all know how it works. That surface tension somehow holds it there that gravity will not pull that water down. But if you tap, just barely tap that water surface, water goes everywhere. And it's filled up to the brim because the whole idea, nothing can fill it up. You know what we do today? Well, we have our water bottle. You know, we spend about 80 cents or a dollar for... Well, for a bottle of water. And then we spend another about 60, 70, 80 cents for this little thing to pour into it to change it into Gatorade or Crystallite or whatever. And then we shake it all up. It's nothing like that. This whole idea, if you started to pull some Crystallite in there, if you poured any wine, if you poured it, it'd break that surface and water would be everywhere. There's nothing you can do to add to this. And he tells the guys, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take and dip into that. And the picture is you dig, dip in it deep, pull it out, and walk out of here and take it to the head waiter. So they did. Verse 9. When the head waiter tasted the water which had been become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn from the water, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves good wine first, 
And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor, you have kept the good wine until now. So now he's identifying this. Typically, you serve the poor wine at the beginning. I mean, the, the poor wine, or the good wine at the beginning, the poor wine at the end. At this wedding, they did something different. It's almost they served the poor wine at the beginning and the good wine at the end. Let's understand how you get good wine. Good wine just doesn't happen overnight. My understanding is all of a sudden you have to have a, a good vineyard to have good wine. You have to have good grapes to have good wine. You have to have a good winemaker to have good wine. You know what else you have to have? It's about two years to make good wine. And somehow, Jesus, just like that, made good wine. They taste in surprise what has happened. All of a sudden, this event takes place, and the water's changed to wine, and it all takes place out of one significant thing. Look back at verse um, where he talked about, this is not my hour. His hour has now come. That refers to the whole idea in John 13. Jesus talks about the fact that his hour deals with the death and resurrection that's going to take place in the upper room discourse. But here all of a sudden things have changed and the Christ who's going to come is the Christ who starts to work at this point. And his hour has come and he changes water to wine. He then describes it this way, verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. This is the idea of beginning. The word is the whole thing that starts at the very beginning. It's the starting point of something. He's saying this is the starting of something in his life that's something different than ever before. This is the beginning of things where things get changed, when water gets changed to wine. And he wants them to understand something significant here is at the beginning. Recall how Genesis 1 begins? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. For Jesus, the very first miracle, the very first sign that he does is changing water to wine. In the beginning, Jesus created wine from water. In the beginning, he's a creator who's at work that takes place. He says the second thing here, it's not just the beginning, he also calls them signs, not miracles. So the whole Gospel of John, they're never called miracles. They're just called signs. And when you think of a sign, what's a sign do? A sign points you into a direction. It gives you instructions. Say, here's where you're going. Here's what's going to happen. Keep your finger here and turn to John 20. John 20 and verses 30 and 31. John's one of the few authors in the Bible who gives us the purpose of his writing. He tells us why he wrote what he wrote, how he wrote what he wrote. And here's what he says. Many other signs, that's our word sign. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So he's saying, listen, Jesus did a lot and a lot and a lot of signs. However, I've only recorded what we know in the Gospel of John. He only records seven. He records seven signs in the book. There's a lot more that he did. You can read the other Gospels and find out. But here's what he did. He's got seven signs in this book. Then he goes on, verse 31. But these, these seven signs in the book, have been written. Why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. 
What is the purpose of the signs? It is to point people to who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. It's to point people that he's the Messiah, the one who brings salvation to people, to point people that he's the Son of God, that he's truly God in the flesh. It's to point people to who he is, not just what is done. So as Jesus performs a miracle here, as he does this sign here, he's identifying, here's what's going on. His hour has come. There's a sign pointing out to who he is. Then he says this in verse 11. It says, and it also manifested his glory. Now we need to understand what this glory refers to. When we come to the Old Testament, we start reading through and we have the tabernacle. That's what in, um, in Exodus 40 is built. Moses then built the tabernacle. You get the holy place and the holy of holies. And the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant has two angels, two cherubim, and their wings just meet right at the top. And there's this hollowed out area over the Ark. And on the mercy seat, the priest would come in and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat every year for the forgiveness of their sins. But the other thing that transpired was as soon as they built this, all of a sudden you get a description of the glory of the Lord coming in and filling, just whoof, filling the holy place, holy of holies. And it resides right between those archangels on the Ark of the Covenant. And that glory is called the Shekinah glory. The idea, it's the residential glory of God. It means God is present. You get to 2 Kings chapter 8. Solomon builds the temple. Temple has the holy place in it and the holy of holies. They move the Ark of the Covenant in there. And what happens? All of a sudden, the glory of the Lord moves from the tabernacle going, woof, and fills the holy of holies. And once again, God is residing there at the Ark of the Covenant saying, God is present in the nation of Israel. And then you read one of the saddest passages in the Bible in Ezekiel 10. The children of Israel go into captivity. And Ezekiel gives this prophecy and description. It identifies the glory of the Lord sitting there between the cherubim, rising up and sitting over the temple. Then it rises up again and sits at the doorway of the temple. Then it rises up and sits at the east gate of the city. And then it rises up and rests on the mountain outside of Jerusalem and it disappears. The children of Israel go into captivity. And when they return, two things do not return with them. The Ark of the Covenant does not come back, and neither does the glory of God. And God no longer resides. There's no Shekinah glory. There's no residential glory in the nation of Israel again. And there's silence from that point. Until you get to Luke chapter 2. And that birth of Jesus. And at the birth of Jesus, the angels come. And you recall that little phrase where it says, And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And because of all our manger scenes and all our stories, what we always envision is all these angels in bright lights. And we all somehow think it's the glory of the angels that they see. 
But that's not what the text says. It's the glory of the Lord that's shown round about them. And what does that mean? It means God is present again in the birth of Jesus Christ. And God is present on the earth again. So when Jesus says here, and John records, it manifested his glory. It demonstrated that he was God in the flesh. The Christ, the Son of God. And that is what happened at the wedding of Canaan. What you need to understand is, the whole point of the passage is, is when Jesus changed water to wine, he's telling us it changes our relationship with Jesus. When Jesus changed the water to wine, it changes the relationship to Jesus. One final thing, verse 11, the final thing it says, and his disciples believed in him. Think about it. They're called disciples in the very first verse, and they didn't believe because they were just followers of Christ. They were just there as Christ. They were somehow just curious about Christ. When you read John chapter 1, you get this picture that they're just curious people who come and see who this guy Jesus is. Come and see what he has to say. But now it's a whole idea. Once they've seen this sign that points them to Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, now they believe. Because changing the water to wine means it changes our relationship with Christ. Changing the water to wine is a sign that our relationship with Christ must change. You know, some of us are like Mary, folks. Some of us who are followers of Christ are just like Mary. When we think of our relationship with Jesus, we have all these requests, all these things we want him to do. I want him to change my wife, or I want him to change my husband. I want him to change my kids. I want him to change my parents. I want him to change my circumstance. I want him to change my job. I want him to change my boss. I want him to change my coworkers. I want him to change the house I live in. I want him to change the car I have. I want him to change the salary I get. I want him to change the money I make. I want him to change my savings account. I want him to change everything you can think of. You want him to change. And just like Mary... We come and make request after request after request after request after request of Jesus. Because we want him to do what we want done. And Jesus would look at each one of us and say, woman or man, my hour has not yet come. And he wants us to understand our relationship needs to change. We need to change that relationship so that all of a sudden we realize he is the Lord. He is God. And things are done in his time, not my time. That he has authority over my life, not me. That his will is the one to work, not mine. That things happen when he wants them to happen, not when I want them to happen. That my circumstances are what they are, because that's what he wants for my circumstances at this time. And I need to change my relationship with Christ.
Folks, I'm not saying that's easy. It is hard. It is hard. It is hard to wait. It is hard. It is hard to persevere. It is hard to wait for his hour to come because it's not in cooperation with the hour that I want it to come because I want it to come now. And his hour is not yet come. And for many of us, we are just like Mary. We demand of Jesus the things that we want, when we want them, how we want them, why we want them. And he's saying, my relationship needs to change. That you realize, I'm the Lord. I'm God. Submit to my time, to my ways. Wait upon me. Persevere. I will work. But some of you are also like the disciples. Uh, you're curious about Christianity. Uh, you haven't quite settled on it. Uh, you, you come on Sundays, and you're glad you were invited, but you're still working through who Christ is. And out of this passage, Jesus would tell you, when you see that water change to wine, it changes your relationship from a curious disciple to a convinced disciple. And that can all happen today. Some of you have grown up in Christian homes. And you've heard, you know, your folks have told you at some age, three, four, or five, that you prayed a prayer. But in your own heart, you, you know that's, that faith is not really there. And you've come to church and participate in things because your folks bring you. And you've wrestled with that. And you're not opposed to it. You're not opposed to Christianity, not opposed to Christ, but you know in your own heart there's more of a curiosity than the sense of being convinced. And for you, you need to be convinced just like the disciples, that when that water was changed to wine, it changes your relationship. It's a sign that your relationship can change from being curious to convinced. Because Jesus changed the water to wine as a sign that your relationship should change. So are you a Mary? Are you a Mary? You need to change your relationship and find that all of a sudden, he's the Lord over your life. Are you a curious disciple? And your relationship needs to change. And all of a sudden today, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden, he becomes your Messiah, that Son of God, and that believing, you have life eternal. Because when he changed water to wine, it was all to tell us. It's a sign to change our relationship with Christ. Let's close in prayer.
But your word is good and true. The sense for us to reflect on our own life. How we could be a Mary who finds ourselves in control, always demanding, always requesting, but the need for you to change our relationship that we find ourselves submitting to our Lord Jesus Christ. For those who find themselves curious, this could be the day that they're finally convinced that Jesus is the Christ and they place their faith in him. Lord, make this a day for all of us that our relationship does change with Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.